The vanity of wealth and honor. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them within his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a labourer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he is nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Well, for those of you who like to have a sermon title, I thought uh, the vanity of wealth and honour seemed an apt one. Uh, And I have just a a few thoughts for you this morning. And I'd just like to start with this. All that I have and all that I am belongs to God. All that I have and all that I am belongs to God. Would you say that about your own lives? All that I have and all that I am belongs to God. I don't know about you, the tradition that you grew up in, the church that you were a part of. But I'll be honest, this is the way it was taught to me as a young person growing up in church. When we give our lives to Christ, all that I have and all that I am belongs to Christ. Have you ever thought about what it is we do when we give our lives to Jesus? You know, we talk about this in lovely, flowery language. We say, well, Jesus wants your heart. He doesn't want this. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want the other. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your service. He wants your heart. But what is your heart if it isn't all of you? He wants your innermost being. He wants you to belong to him and him to belong to you. And in doing so, at that point, 
all that you have and all that you are belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you. This passage makes a great warning to those of us who are saved that if we're pursuing financial gain, no amount of money will ever be enough. Another part of the Bible says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Now that doesn't mean that wealth is a bad thing and I'm going to expound upon that in a moment. But actually, when something begins to take mastery of us, when it becomes our sole goal or focus, whether we have a lot of it or a little, because I think sometimes when we have a little, we think we might be exempt from fearing that money would be our greatest consideration. And I think that that certainly isn't true. I don't mean this church, but let me just speak of the church as a whole. Some of the biggest and ugliest fights I have seen in the church have been around money. The way it's managed. Who has it? Who doesn't? Who gives it away? Who holds it close? Who is responsible for it? And who are they responsible to? Yes, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But if we are fighting and squabbling for the resources of heaven, God isn't glorified. In fact, I would go so far to say as wealth and weariness go hand in hand, I think this passage would echo that. Wealth and weariness go hand in hand. When one begins to spend their life considering their wealth, managing their wealth, hoarding their wealth, just as they do that, so too grows the weariness, whether that's increased dependency of other people on them, whether it's a wage bill of managing the wealth that has been created, whether it's simply the people that you have around you, your friends, your family. With wealth comes weariness. But the laborer is blessed. Another part of the word of God talks about how we should labor, we should do all things as though we are working for God. And I think that's the key difference. That's the counterpoint to this passage. You see, when we start working, when we start working, we expect a wage. Once we start expecting a wage, then we start hoping for more. Once we start hoping for more, there is never enough. I think the spiritual blessing, the spiritual discipline of practicing contentedness is one that we have not just lost sight of, but that isn't spoken about in church nearly enough. You see, riches are too easily lost, but the kingdom of God is eternal. So where will we place our hope? I mean, just from a logical standpoint, practicing contentedness in Christ 
make sense. One of the great challenges to churches in this day and age is that we do a great many things. In fact, we encourage our people to do a great many things because with the spiritual discipline we're encouraging comes a practical blessing. And that is very true of this passage. If you practice contentedness in Christ, if you practice contentedness in Christ, there is a practical blessing that you won't be always seeking more. But more than that, we give glory to God. Natalie shared this morning in the tithing talk about not proportional giving, but sacrificial praise and worship. You see, for those going into the temple, it was expected, it was normal. You made your gift on the way in. But for the widow, the widow's might, that was sacrificial generosity. That was sacrificial worship to God. And that's why it's remarked upon thousands of years later, because out of her poverty, she gave what she had. There's a great story from 1831. An American farmer invented a mechanical harvester. Six years later, he went bankrupt and lost his farm and everything he owned was put up for sale. With the exception of one item, his recent invention, which was deemed to be worthless by his creditors. In 1840, it went on sale, making him a multimillionaire. But the man saw need of a greater harvest and used part of his fortune to promote the evangelistic ministry of D.L. Moody. You see, when we're, when we're working for Jesus, when we're working for Jesus, our hope is secure in something much, much greater than anything we can amass by ourselves. The blessing of God, the faithfulness of God, the friendship of God, faith in God will never put us to shame. I'd like to say even that working for the Lord is the opposite of the corruption that this passage talks about. It's hard not to stray into political territory at the moment when thinking about corruption. People saying one thing and doing another. I don't intend us to get lost in the weeds this morning, so let's not go there. But this passage reminds us that a greater power is always observing the acts of those in power. I believe that that greater power is the Lord God Almighty. And who else is qualified to judge the living and the dead but God himself? You see, as we look at this passage, as we consider it together, Verse 10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, and that this is also vanity. 
we live in an age in a world where we are surrounded by conspicuous consumption. Whether it's you jump on Instagram and you see your friends doing amazing things out at amazing places because nobody seems to be posting on social media when they do the dishes or have to do some hoovering. Can't think why. (laughs) We live in an age where people become famous even for the lavish lifestyles that they lead. But we don't see the full picture. We see the, the highlight reel. And it encourages us to not be satisfied with what we have. It encourages us to want to have more. It even has been suggested that we construct our identity with the brands that we buy and derive value from the things that we have. Is that a good brand? Is this a good brand? Is that good enough? Is that nice enough? You know, if we went out and we did a bunch of consumer testing... And we found some fantastic products. I mean, really, really high quality products. And we removed the branding from them. Would people still ascribe the same value to them? If you were given a brand new Audi, but it didn't have an Audi badge on it, would it still be worth as much as the car with the badge? I'm sure there are many of you whether you're watching online or whether you're here in the room thinking, well, no, of course it would be worth the same. I, I mean, it would be worth exactly the same. I wouldn't feel any differently about it. And yet car manufacturers make cars. The same car manufacturer will make all of the parts for one car and another car. They'll put one badge on one and one badge on the other, and we'll all go, no, but that's, no, but that's better engineered. But they've been made in the same factory, and all they've done is they've changed some trim. I mean, that's the world we live in now. Isn't this mad? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you'll buy some jeans from a factory in a third world nation. Some will go to one store, some will go to another store, and will pay ten times the amount for one pair over another. This passage goes on, and I... I really think it's important that we derive encouragement from a message like this of challenge. But it talks in verse 11 about dissatisfaction, how once you're dissatisfied and goods increase, they increase those that eat them. The more you have, the more people you have needing your support, your help. You start asking yourself, well, how much is enough? Have I got enough now? How about now? And it goes on and it goes on. Verse 12 talks about sleeplessness of the unsatisfied soul. You know, this idea that once you're dissatisfied, that niggling desire, that need for more becomes all-consuming. Once you are convinced that you don't have enough, it just creeps into every area of your being, every area of your life. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the rich will not let him sleep. 
Another passage says it's easier for a wealthy man to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for him to enter heaven. Verse 13 and 14 talk about the anxiety that goes with not having enough or convincing ourselves that we don't have enough. A grievous evil. Riches kept to their owners. And I think the challenge here is that we are meant to be a generous people. Our Heavenly Father is a generous King. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who has everything, who owns everything, who our next breath even is a gift from, wants us to be a generous people just as he is a generous God. I think this is a kingdom value. Generosity is a kingdom value. If we don't practice generosity, we're not fully entering into the kingdom of God. If we're constantly anxious that we aren't going to have enough if we give something away, we begin to forget that actually every good and perfect gift is a gift from above. If we're concerned that we don't have enough, what about the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. I've read something about that, have you? They don't sow or reap, and yet they don't need to worry because the Lord looks after them. It goes on, verses 15 through 17. The futility of the labor when labor is in vain. We would love to believe, we would love to believe that we have developed a meritocratic system where if you work hard, you receive much. We would love to believe that there is a level and even playing field that everybody enters life with the same opportunity. And if they would apply themselves, then they're going to be able to accomplish great things. But whether you consider it being fortunate or lucky, or dare I say, even blessed, that clearly isn't a universal truth. Only in a Western nation can we really suggest a thing like that as unironically as we do. The world is not, truly not, a meritocracy. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we're working for? What is our purpose? What is our joy? What will be that toil in which we toil under the sun and find enjoyment? Sun in this passage is spelled S-U-N, and I want to suggest to us, perhaps toiling under the sun and finding enjoyment should be spelled S-O-N. For those of us who know Christ, toiling under the lordship of Jesus Christ, I think that is where we find purpose. That's where we're going to find meaning. That's where we're going to find calling. That's where we're going to find Jesus. And as this passage goes on, as it continues to to deconstruct the world that the 
the people that this story is speaking to, and a story that I think speaks to us with every single word, carrying just as much meaning and relevance for us today as we seek to apply it to our lives, as we challenge our own thinking about wealth and honor and what wealth and honor are really for, is wealth for status, is wealth for enjoyment, is honor a platform that we have earned, or is it in fact for service? If strength is for status, then once we have achieved it, there is nothing left to do. But instead, if strength is for service, not for status, then suddenly it has great meaning. When we look at Jesus, I don't think we see a warrior king as the people who had waited such a long time for the Christ to appear had expected. Instead, they found a servant king, born in a manger, dying on a cross, carrying the sins of the world, and speaking to you and I on a heart level about the things of God, God's intention for our hearts, our lives, and our hope in him. Just as Micah 6.8 teaches us about justice and righteousness, that we must love mercy and walk humbly and act justly, I think this passage is pointing out that actually every corruption is observed by God. Every problem, every bad decision, and still they continue. A higher power always watching. And yet the people of the, the world, perhaps even ourselves, we struggle to live out God's perfect plan. God's calling on our lives. And so we need Jesus and how could we not need Jesus? This passage speaks of the risk of seeking worldly riches for our salvation. And in truth, there is nothing we can do, have or earn, that will save us. And to think otherwise is both a vanity and a peril. Grace through faith alone, sola deo gloria. God's glory, not ours. This passage deals with the issue of righteousness and justice. It tells us not to be surprised when there is brokenness and corruption, when sin is on display for all to see. The whole system is a system that is fallen and broken, and that is why we need Jesus. You know, that's not surprising, this passage is saying. It's not surprising that the world is an imperfect place. It's not surprising when somebody does wrong to us. It's not surprising when things don't go our way. It's not surprising. It's not surprising that there is poverty and famine and war and strife. 
Because these are the things that come to the fore when people live in a way that doesn't bring glory to God, doesn't bring glory to Jesus. The weaker will always suffer, except for in the new heaven and the new earth. When Jesus comes again, But be on your guard because there is justice in the Lord's will. We spend so much time talking about grace and love and hope in Jesus. Sometimes I fear that we don't do a good enough job talking about the justice of God. You see, because without justice, grace becomes hollow. Without the law of God, we fail to understand that which we have been forgiven. And if we've been forgiven much, if we have been forgiven much, then we better know it. Because just as we're forgiven, and the more we understand the forgiveness of God in Christ, grace and hope in Christ, the more we understand that, the better we understand the gift, wonderful gift, is standing in our place. You see, if we're going to work for the Lord God, Jesus becomes our joy. And if, if that's how we're going to live our lives, acknowledging that Jesus is our joy, then the joy of the Lord truly is our strength. And so then we find more and more joy in working for Jesus. I think it's amazing, church, that we get to be the people of God. Can you believe that we get to do this? We are trusted with being the church. God's plan for salvation is the church. And he trusts you and I to be the church together. What a high honor. What a significant place in time and history. What a challenge to us to live as the people of God. God trusts us with his message of his glory and of his grace. I think this passage highlights that wealth is not inherently evil, but the love of wealth is if we're going to be given much, then much will be expected of us. Or as the Marvel series puts it, with great power comes great responsibility. There's a high calling on our lives. It couldn't get much higher than to be the sons and daughters of God. I once heard someone say, that therefore, if God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then that must make us, as part of his family, the princes and princesses of the kingdom. And while I struggle with that notion slightly, there's certainly some logic there. What does it look like to belong to the family of God? Are we going to follow, are we going to live out the standards, the family rules, the best of what that family looks like and believes. 
are we going to magnify the joy of the Lord by living according to the will of God? The Apostle Paul does a great job. In fact, I consider just reading this and sitting down and leaving you to think about it this morning. When he writes in 1 Corinthians three twenty-one to 23, All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. What God gives us is ours to glorify God with. We owe it all to him. We owe it all to him our very selves. And so the challenge to us is to be rich in good works, ready to give and willing to share. I guess what I'm trying to say is wealth and honor are no bad thing. Wealth and honor are no bad thing. But what will we do with them? Even the poorest among us is some of the richest in the world that we live in. We live in a world, a time and age of great prosperity in some parts of the world and great poverty in others. It's so easy to think wrongly that we are not wealthy because we compare ourselves to someone who has greater wealth. And so the challenge for us is, what will we do? What benefit will we be to the kingdom? How will we bring value? How can we be the trusted servants of the Lord Most High? What will the Lord say to us? Will he say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or will we be like the servant who hid his master's riches? How can you be trusted to serve with more if that is based on how you serve now? What is our hope in? Who are we hoping in? Does the joy of the Lord occupy your heart? Or does something else? You see, God wants our heart, just as I wrap up, bringing this full circle for a moment. God wants our heart because he wants to occupy our heart. That's where he wants to make his home, our heart, yours and mine. And for him to fully be in our hearts, for him to be the thing that we are most concerned with, we're going to have to make room. If we don't make room, to put that a different way, how can God fully inhabit our hearts? High office, honor, great riches and wealth. These are things that can consume a person. Their heart's desire. What is your heart's desire this morning? What do you want more than anything else? Are you letting God lovingly lead you into his joy? Or are you striving and seeking to find joy and significance in something other than Christ?
I'm going to pray with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your plan for us is to fill our hearts with your joy and your purpose. We thank you that your desire is that we might know you. Father, we want to know you more. We want to hope in you. We want to trust in you. We want to know your ways. And as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. As we place our hope and trust in you, as we seek first your kingdom, as we ask that the joy of the Lord would fill our lives, Father God, help us to be more fully your people, your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.